Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Pleased to say that joining me in the studio alongside Tom Keen and myself here in New York, Ian Shepherdson, Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Ian. Good morning. Let's start with that data out of China. Sub 50 yeah. for a fifth straight month. Not great, but small signs of improvement in the Chinese data. You'll read this morning, please, Ian. Yes, uh, definitely less bad. You notice I didn't say better, but less bad. Yep. Less bad. And on the Kaishin Index, which is the unofficial PMI survey, which tends to capture the views of smaller private companies and not so many of the big uh, SOEs, uh, substantially better, but also very volatile. So, certainly I'd rather see these numbers than weaker numbers, but it's, it's, it's too early to get the flags out. It's too early to say this is the major turning point. And also, you know, looking at the policy stance and looking at the slow growth of the money supply in China, it's kind of hard to see that a, a good reason why you should be expecting things to be taking off rapidly right now. But as far as it goes, uh, markets will be pleased to see these numbers, but um, I think uh, caution and uh, skepticism is still appropriate. And new orders improve, export orders improve, a lot of things beneath the surface improve. But to your point, I don't find many people this morning saying this is the beginning of a turning point. What I do see is just this wall of doubt, this wall of doubt around trade talks that begin again next week. This call from Morgan Stanley's Michael Zizas, who said the following, we have more conviction that without a circuit breaker, escalation continues over the medium term, meaning any pause is fleeting. Investors should price in all announced actions, even if further delays or pauses are announced. What do you make of that, Ian? Oh, I agree. I mean, I don't think we're going to get a trade deal this side of the election. I think we're going to get some warm noises next week. But I think that really what's happening here is that China has essentially given up on Trump. Uh, Any deal that Trump is willing to sign is a deal that China can't sign. Uh, Xi Jinping's under enormous pressure not to be seen to be bowing uh, to Trump uh, because of what's going on in Hong Kong. He can't appear to be weak. Uh, And so I think that what they're planning to do now is to string Trump along until the election. They can read the polling. They can see what's happening with the impeachment. They see Trump as... as, uh, as rather less likely to be re-elected than markets think, and therefore, for them, it might be more mm. sensible to wait for the next guy. Which differential is more important, the dynamics of our exports to China or their stuff coming in here? Well, it depends where you sit. You know, if I were a U.S. manufacturer right now, I'd be extremely nervous about the, uh, the export story. And if I were a retailer in the U.S., I'd be really worried about what's going to happen to the price of Chinese imports. But both of them are going to suffer. So what that means is that we have potentially a growth hit through the weaker exports. And uh, U.S. export orders, if you look at the U.S. PMI, the, uh, the export orders numbers are horrendous, yeah. absolutely awful. But, of course, we now have a 15% tariff on a bunch of consumer goods and and the remaining consumer goods being tariffed in December. So it's very difficult from both sides, growth down and inflation potentially up. We're going to rip up the script right now. There's a red sticky, John, that the yields in the repo market, this is overnight repos. I don't want to go into much of the minutiae here on a Monday morning. But those numbers are above where they're supposed to be. They just can't get the, the rates in this arcane short-term trust market lower. Quarter end. Quarter end today. I, I, there's noise and, there. And, and, I and get I imagine it. the New York Fed's going to come in again, as they've indicated they will do. And we see how much more than the amount they do is bid for, etc. What have you learned about this, Ian, in the last week and a half? I mean, as John correctly states, September 30, yeah. 
yield comes in nicely above 2%. Yep. I mean, what, what have you learned about the repo? What, what, what we've learned is that all those people who said that as the quantity of reserves shrinks, the repo market's going to run into trouble were right. And so there are, there's really two ways out of it. Either the Fed adds reserves permanently, presumably of the order of several hundred billion. The problem with that is that it's QE, which they don't want to do at this point. Uh, or they have to go back essentially to these frequent repo operations, uh, but, but permanently. It's, it's very clear now that with the stock of reserves having shrunk so far, there is not enough liquidity in the market to prevent these spikes. Um, they're not going to go away of their own accord. This is not going to be fixed, I think, by an organic expansion of the Fed's balance sheet because it's just not going to be quick enough. So they have to make a decision, and something's going to change. I am not wedded one way or the other to the permanent reserve ad or to the, the endless repos, but one of those two things has to happen because otherwise the problem is just going to keep coming up. And Anything to worry about, Ian? From a, well, that's, from a macro perspective, no, not really, um, because they'll keep fixing it. If they don't keep fixing it, then eventually the spike in rates will start passing through to business and consumer borrowing costs. But it's inconceivable that they won't fix it. So the question is really a technical one for markets, which is which fix do they go for? And at yeah. the moment, yeah, but, we, we don't have clarity. Okay, but, but can we just say on a Monday morning where nobody wants to do the math that all we're talking about is this QE, QE light, QE infinity, or as the institutional voices say, such as William Dudley, wait, Tom, it's not QE. I mean, within your thesis of this, which is it? Well, if you permanently add reserves, it is QE. Uh, if you're doing uh, endless short-term repos, then, then it isn't. So uh, you know, you could, you, they can dress it up in, in, in different ways. But you know, the fact is, if they're going to add, as I was reading this morning, analysts, some analysts thinking they're going to add four or five hundred billion in reserves, that, that's, that is QE. There's just no way around it. We could call it something different, but you know, it is. And I don't think they want to go down that road at the moment, but they do have to do something. I mean, doing nothing uh, is not an option, that's for sure. Let's get to the economic data we're set to see through the week. ISM's tomorrow in America. Mm. Payroll's oh, coming up on yeah. Friday. A small crack and essentially the last man standing in the developed economy, which is the U.S. consumer. <laughs> Confidence last week hit yeah. just a little bit. Yeah. Consumer spending not coming in quite as firm as yeah. some people were looking for. Ian, how on top of that are you at the moment? I'm, I'm getting twitchy about the consumer. I've got to say those spending numbers last week for August looked to me to be ripe for an upward revision. They were, they were so low and so inconsistent with some of the other stuff. Yeah. I think they'll be revised higher. But I don't like the declining confidence numbers. And what I think has happened here is that both in the business <coughs> and the consumer side, the breakdown of the China trade talks in April, May, and the big increase in tariffs since then, and the imposition of tariffs on consumer goods, which really nobody thought they'd be dumb enough to do, that's really scaring people. Yeah. And, it's, and it's really beginning to eat into confidence now in, in a way that I think we'd become very blasé. We would think, oh, the consumer is just completely rock solid, is never going to fold. Well, they're not folding, but they're just they're beginning yeah. to wobble. Thank God Watford folded. Yeah, so we're only I, second bottom. You're only second <laughs> to the bottom. I mean, I, 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 folks, I found this new thing that saves me so much time. I don't have to watch Saturday, Sunday morning football. What is it? I get on YouTube every goal, it's called. Where they show every goal oh, scored. Did you see they all spent five? A, they spent a lot of time <laughs> against Newcastle on, United. On, on, is it Lister or Leicester? Leicester. Leicester. They spent a lot of time on Leicester. Well, that's didn't because they? Leicester scored five takes, goals. Takes against a long time to show five goals against Newcastle what, United. I want to get to the business side of this because oh, it is you? Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs> if you're relegated, what does the owner do? 
Uh, well, you get a big parachute payment from the Premier League to, to ease the, your transition. Uh, and what you hope is that you can spend some money and come bouncing back up again. Th things get difficult if you go down and don't manage to come back the following year. So under the two relegations under the current ownership, uh, we have uh, Newcastle has rebounded both <coughs> times. But the squad now is so weak and the current coaches uh, so challenge, shall we say, that, that were we to be relegated, which frankly, even in, yeah. in September now looks inevitable, yeah. then we probably won't come back up again and it'll all I, go to hell in the hand. To, to take this seriously, it's fun to watch Newcastle United, particularly at home. I, to, I find it, it just, used to be. I mean, it's, it's not it's, fun for the, the, tots, <laughs> the tots are like antiseptic, you know, the tots are like the Dallas Cowboys in a big fancy stadium and there's Newcastle. Ian, we'll leave it there. Thank Ian, you. thank you. With us now, with the 70th anniversary of the communist experiment in China, Elizabeth Economy. I can't say enough about her book, The Third Revolution, and in Chapter 8, The Road Forward. Let's get an update. How's the road forward for President Xi? Uh, so President Xi is facing some pretty serious headwinds right now, uh, both at home, uh, where he confronts a slowing Chinese economy, concerns over uh, employment, uh, the environment, uh, you know, his anti-corruption campaign is still moving forward, but a lot of discontented uh, people right now within China, uh, and certainly abroad. Uh, obviously, the uh, protests in Hong Kong, uh, a very serious uh, challenge uh, to sort of the legitimacy of that communist experiment, uh, as well as the U.S.-China trade war and pushback against uh, many of the Belt and Road projects. Um, so these are, you know, Xi Jinping's major initiatives, right? Reclaiming sovereignty over Hong Kong, Taiwan, the South China Sea, the Belt and Road, expanding Chinese influence, China's growing presence on the global stage. So, you know, things are, are, are in a difficult, he's in a difficult position right now. 160 fighter jets, I think 580 tanks will roll through the capital tomorrow. Liz, what's the story the Chinese leader is telling the Chinese people at the moment to keep things together? What's the story? So Xi Jinping really uses two different narratives uh, to rally support. Uh, the first is uh, we have risen, right? He very famously said uh, in his acceptance speech for his second uh, five-year term, you know, China has uh, stood up, grown rich, is now moving towards center stage, and is really rising on the global stage, right? It's the return of China, the rejuvenation of the great Chinese nation. And that's the type of thing that this military parade speaks to. At the same time, we've seen over the past month or so in preparation uh, for this uh, event that he's, he's using that threat narrative, right? The U.S. is trying to contain us. We face threats to our core interests. We th face threats to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so that's the other uh, sort of narrative that he's developed uh, in order to bind the Chinese people uh, to, to him and to the Chinese Communist Party. 70 years of the Communist Party and arguably the biggest threat to them right now is what is happening with the economy. Liz, how big a threat is the slowdown in China at the moment to the Chinese? I've seen economists looking for 5% GDP growth in China through the next 12 months. Does 5% get it done? Does that keep things stable? 
I don't think that there is a magic number, frankly, that will lead to instability in China. It could be 5%, it could be 4%. Uh, they're going to continue to try to use all uh, the mechanisms that they have at their disposal uh, from you know, encouraging uh, banks to loan more, encouraging uh, local governments to invest more, uh, using the state-owned enterprises. Uh, they will continue to pump money uh, into the system uh, to the best of their ability to maintain stability. They also have an extraordinary coercive police apparatus, right? They spend more on their internal policing than they do on the Chinese People's Liberation Army, wow. right? They have 200 million surveillance cameras. You know, phones are now being fitted with these apps that download every piece of information from where you're shopping to your health records right to the local public security bureaus. So even if the thing slows down and you begin yeah. to have some marginal social unrest, they have in place very serious police capabilities. There's an argument I hear again and again and again on a program like this that the president in China can wait this president out here in the United States, yep. can wait things out until the next election. And I struggle with this idea because I don't see a single Democrat on the stage in the debates who doesn't agree with the president on most aspects of taking on China. They might disagree on the approach, but they agree on the objective. And if I was the Chinese right now and I was thinking about facing a first-term president or a second-term president. With all of that in mind, Liz, doesn't facing a second-term president make a little bit more sense? Well, I think it's, yes, the, it's the devil you know as opposed to the one that you don't know. I think that's pretty much how they, they look at it. I think the concern in China around President Trump is really that even if they get a trade deal done on Friday, when Monday comes around, he's going to turn up and say, oh, actually, <laughs> you now need to do this or that. So I think um, that uncertainty that he brings to the table is is you know, challenging for the Chinese. Do you recommend little kids start Mandarin early? Where are you on, uh, you know, the, the, the Vogue is, you know, we have to learn Chinese. Why does no one learn Han? <laughs> Why does nobody learn, man, I mean, Mandarin, Mandarin, which is the, which is the main uh, language that's yeah. used uh, should, in China, northern children, China. When should children start? Children should start learning Chinese if they want to learn Chinese. Look, my kids all studied Chinese for five, six years. They also studied They've Latin. They've never forgiven you. I've got a classics major. I have an econ yeah. major. I've got an art history major. I've got nobody pursuing China. They all studied in China. It, it, it really should stem from the desire of the child. I don't believe in forcing children to, to study anything. Pharaoh's all over Babel Mandarin. He's just killing it. I'm, I'm loving Babel Mandarin. You're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. Thanks it's, for that. Doing it. <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth the great economy, to see thank you. you so much. I can't say enough, folks, about uh, that. It's not a short read, but it's just an easy, wonderful, thoughtful read on today's China, the third revolution. Saints winning was one of the criteria for Henrietta Trace to join us as she joins us right now uh, with her affinity for uh, New Orleans as we look at policy. Henrietta, I'm going to really stay on your research note, which I thought was brilliant with Veda Partners. And that is, I love your phrase, the investment wars. Describe that right now between U.S. and China. What are the investment wars? Well, sure. First off, who dat? Um, thank you, got you that Dr. right. Miranda Celestri for taking me last night. That was a blast. Um, the investment wars are essentially just another another parallel track on the broader U.S.-China trade agenda. And you know, the fact that it caught investors by surprise on Friday, I thought was particularly illuminating. Not only have there been 
obviously great reporting by Jenny Leonard and the folks in your team, but the in, the senators on Capitol Hill, including specifically from the Republican Party, have been pushing for various avenues like this, as has the SEC itself, saying we need further access, we need more clarity, we need more transparency. If you're going to be a Chinese company and be listed on our exchanges and we can't even take a look at your balance sheets, how are we going to work this out? Then we had to the so, White House has issued a partial qualified denial, um, <laughs> pushing back just a little bit against some of the part, reporting on what's, Friday. What's partial qualified? Well, the broader story, the broader story, as Henrietta points out, is about curbing U.S. investments into Chinese assets. That's the broader story. One of the options was an extreme option, which was delisting Chinese companies, and the White House essentially pushing back against that and denied that it was considering delisting Chinese companies at this time. But Henrietta, the broader story still stands. And as you've pointed out, this isn't a secret on Capitol Hill. Many people are talking about it. How do you see it evolving in the months to come into actual policy? Well, the first thing I would look at is what can the president do unilaterally? So I spent time um, talking with folks and understanding the Treasury's position. And there are some small things on the margins that the administration can do without Congress and without probably causing an uproar. So one of the things specifically would be to institute those kinds of investment restrictions into things that they specifically control, specifically here, the thrift, thrift savings plans, the TSPs, which are the um, investment plans that we have for U.S. government or civil service employees. So if the Treasury wanted to make that change, unilaterally at TSP, they could. Um, getting Chinese companies entirely off U.S. exchanges is something that I think is more effectively what they're trying to do via the export control restrictions, where they essentially say, if you're a Chinese company, you are not allowed to invest in a U.S. company, and vice versa. Um, by the way, they're also exp- uh, expressly prohibiting the export of specific high-end technology components, AI, biotechnology. If you're in that space, forget it. There's no investment flow that's going to happen. I mean, it's so bad that your employees can't even travel to China and you can't have Chinese employees come to your country, uh, to your company and see what it is that you're working on. So there are insidious ways and and very um, hard to convey to investor ways that the the Treasury, the Pentagon, CFIUS and all these agencies are working on and have been working on since at least 2017. And they're going to be rolled out at the end of uh, probably next week is my understanding. Uh, Interesting. Three things in particular, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, and 3D printing. So those are your first couple that are going to come, and that includes investment restrictions. So if you want to see real-time examples, call up the Bureau of Industry and Security. I know that's wonky, but those are the guys who are working on it right now. For anyone that's interested in the investment side of this and the accounting standards, I encourage you to watch The China Hustle, a great documentary available on Hulu right now. Really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Tom, about yeah. this, the lack of accounting standards well, okay, great. that are equivalent to what U.S. companies are subjected to. You know, let's sing the national anthem right now. So China cuts off soybeans. What does that do to our intellectual well, property ask about debate? This. Henrietta, do you see this effort that was described in several media outlets on Friday as distinctly separate from the trade story as talks progress next week? I do not. Um, indeed, there have been so many different examples of how poorly talks are going. Um, let's, for a second, talk about how we impose sanctions on Chinese shipping and cargo companies for importing Iranian oil. Um, they took a small-scale step, but if you were paying attention, why would you think that the U.S.-China talks are going well? And that's sort of the kind of component we see all the time. They're just on these smaller scales that are not so flashy as these investment yeah. restrictions. And to, the, you know, to give investors some credit, it's tough to follow. There's a lot going on. Um, So you see that, you you know, Vice Premier Liu He is supposed to come over. We tentatively are expecting uh, October 10th and 11th. And maybe
maybe there could be a pause. I'm a little anxious that we are already in the pause time. And the pause time is supposed to be when China makes some right. soy or pork purchases, and they're already doing that. The farmers are adamant that we get even the smallest level of purchase. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the farmers, is genuinely scary these days. So um, to, to think that there's going to be maybe a 30-, 60-day pause, I don't see a 90-day pause happening, okay. but that's the best-case okay. scenario. But what's Chuck Grassley or Pat Roberts do? I mean, it's genuinely, and I get a lot of mail on this, folks. Good morning out of the Midwest. Simply, what are the farmers going to do? Well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what's interesting is that they are looking to expand trade with India. They're talking about bright spots in the Caribbean islands. Um, they're extraordinarily anxious about the potential for auto tariffs and these forthcoming EU tariffs because they have to have that open line of trade on soy, lentils, peas, and almonds with the EU. And that's basically their only shining light right now. And so they're just very protective of that. But they don't see the China trade war ending. Support mm-hmm. amongst farmers remains high enough that the president and Pat Roberts and Chuck Grassley have to sort of sit down and let this play out. Um, when you go and talk to the Senate Agriculture Committee staff and say, what do you think is going to happen with the list 4B tariffs in December? They say, I don't care. We've already right. been tariffed to kingdom come. Nothing can Well, that, that, that's my next question. What's the Henrietta Trey's date calendar for October, November, December? What's the next important date coming up where we see true impact upon our listeners? Well, the, probably the biggest headline is going to come on either the 10th or the 11th when uh, USTR Lifehizer and Luha actually meet. So that'll be your next major event. So the run-up here, obviously, tomorrow is the 70th anniversary of the PRC, so I wouldn't expect a lot of data in the next two days. But as we head into the week of October 7th, I would suggest that things are going to get very hot and heavy. Um, and then looking ahead, obviously, we have the following Tuesday, October 15th, which is when the previously set thresholds were extraordinarily raised to 30% in a matter of three hours, which has really thrown the manufacturers for a loop. So that's $250 billion worth of, including consumer-facing goods and industrial inputs, that are going to rise substantially on October 15th unless they reach a pause agreement. Um, As I said, I think at best you probably get a 30- to 60-day delay. I wouldn't see another Argentina-style delay of 90 days happening again because obviously that didn't pan out very well for the U.S. last time. Um, And then we have intermittent dates uh, in November with the Huawei temporary ban, uh, sorry, temporary license being uh, expiring, which the administration indicated last week, sort of along the lines of the Iran sanctions, that they are not going to be extending again. So there's going to be escalating tensions throughout the fall, leading up to probably the most headline catching on the street, which is the December 15th escalation of $160 billion worth of tariffs at 15%. Henrietta, thank you so much. Henrietta Trace, the data partners. A nice briefing there on the China dynamics and the calendar for it as well. Jane Foley was with us, I think, a week ago, eight days ago, 10 days ago, eight days a week, whatever, with Rabobank. And the euro is moving so dramatically, we thought we would get her back on again to give us an update. Uh, Jane, there's a chart I use, which is one of the gifts of the Bloomberg. It has to do with a guy named Wells Wilder in 1978, and it's extremely complex trend mathematics. And the basic idea is if I was teaching a course on trend right now, I could use the chart of short euro, weak euro, 
is an absolutely textbook trend. Is that true from your uh, vantage point? It is, but I think it's only part of the story. I mean, certainly if we look back over the last few weeks, certainly the last few months, there is increasing concern about the state of the German economy particularly. I mean, if we look at the PMI data for most of the Eurozone, they really have been trending lower for the best part of two years now. And uh, certainly with Germany, um, there is the the, the risk that we could be quite close to a technical recession. Certainly the the manufacturing, the industrial sector appears to be um, already in recession, but it's not all of the news. I think when we look at euro dollar, we've got to look at the dollar side. And, and I'm looking at a chart right now, which is a very simple chart. And this is just a chart from the BIS, their data, and it's just showing global US dollar credit to non-residents. And this has gone up from around $1 trillion in 2000 to $6 trillion in um, more or less the current day. And, and I think this shows yeah. that the dollar really is dominant on the payment system. And, and this is why people need dollars, particularly when risk aversion goes up. What's your target then on weak euro? We were talking earlier uh, with one of your colleagues in crime, Jordan Rochester of Nomura, and he says, it's all great and you can frame out weak euro, but the moment everybody goes on parity watch, all sorts of strange things happen. Do you agree with that? Well, you know, parity, I think, is still a long way away. I mean, I'm... That's I'm, what he said, yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're dollar bulls, um, and we have been, you know, really since the beginning of last yes. year, which put us against the consensus, but um, the, the, it's now just hit our target, which is 109, so we've got to rethink. Um, and I think looking at the, the data that we have from the Eurozone, looking at the, the strength of dollar demand, there is a risk that euro yeah. dollar is going to go lower. And, and, you know, 105 seems a long way away and um, right now, and I, I think parity perhaps a little bit too far, yeah. and, I, and I think certainly to put in on our predictions, I think for that to happen, we really would have to have something really um, significantly worse happen in terms of the Eurozone yeah. economy than, than is anticipated, and probably in, in terms of trade wars between the US and, and China sort of contributing right. to that. So Jane, you mentioned earlier the, the weakness in the manufacturing sector in, in Europe, particularly we're even seeing it obviously in, in Germany, but the consumer, much like in the US, the consumer remains resilient. Uh, how long do you think that can last? Well, I think we're beginning to see the first signs of, of softness there. I mean, the, the, the reason that the consumer remains resilient is, of course, the labor market has been particularly strong. Um, now, um, once we begin to see more signs of softness in the labor market, clearly consumer confidence takes a dip and, and he or the consumer remains or becomes far more um, likely to, to stop spending. Now, if we look at the unemployment data that we had from this morning for September, we saw um, the, the, the change down 10,000, um, a small revision to, to last time. But I think if we look back over the last three months, we are beginning to see a little bit of softness coming through, which is what you can expect. I mean, unemployment is, of course, a lagged indicator. Um, when order books dry up, um, factory owners don't get rid of their staff immediately. They hang on as, as long as they feasibly can, and, and hence we get the lag in, in those numbers. But if we do continue to get uh, softness through in the labor market through to the end of the year, I, I think we can expect that we will begin to get consumer confidence softening and, and the retail um, sector really beginning to reflect that as well. So, Jane, what are your thoughts on sterling? We seem to be hurtling towards some type of uh, perhaps a hard Brexit, yet I'm kind of seeing there was a you know, little lift in sterling off of the 120 level here uh, up to 123. What are your thoughts about sterling here as we really get close to Halloween? 
Well, I mean, I think we all know it's, it's quite binary. If there's a deal, sterling will go up, and if there isn't a deal, sterling will go down. And, and it is quite interesting today that there have been another uh, round of reports suggesting that the, the Tory party, the UK government, could be about to put some papers in front of the EU by the end of this week, and that would be an, another um, round of um, compromises or potential compromises that the UK could be willing to make. But it's very difficult to know what to believe, because if we look back at the weekend press, the Weekend press was suggesting that the DUP, which is of course the Ulster um, uh, Unionist Party, were pretty uncompromising, and that is quite that is quite um, important because although the DUP only has nine or so seats in, in the UK Houses of Parliament, it's often considered that if the DUP uh, are, uh, agree with a certain type of plan, and that would be related to the, the contentious issues of the, the, the Northern Ireland issue, if the DUP are happy with it, then many other MPs from all the other parties would likely go along with it. So people do use what the DUP says a litmus test. And over the weekend, they were uncompromising, suggesting that the, the, um, the new um, uh, factors which the Prime Minister mm-hmm. can present to the, the to the EU today may not be acceptable. So it's very, very difficult to, to know what to believe. One day where we're, right. we, we see hot air and the next day it's gone cold again. Jane, thank you so much. Jane Foley, Rabobank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.